0: We'll invite you now to turn with me in God's Word to uh, the Luke Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter two, and we're going to consider this morning the fourth and final song of Luke's Gospel, as well as the birth of Christ, which will conclude our Advent series. But we want to begin with the birth of Christ this morning. So we'll begin reading in Luke chapter two, verses one through seven, and then we'll. Pick up again in verse 22 and we'll read verses 22 to 35. We'll read God's Word now beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius, Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each from his own town. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Here ends the reading of God's Word. May He add His blessing upon it. Dear... Congregation. Many of you may have Christmas traditions. Many families, it seems, these days also have the tradition of watching a family movie, a film that they like to watch every Christmas season. Some of you may even enjoy the Charlie Brown Christmas all the way back in ancient years when it first came out. But in 1965, after struggling to understand the point of Christmas trees, of Christmas pageants, and presents on Christmas Day, Charlie Brown cried out this famous question, Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? This famous question strikes at the modern glory of Christmas. You see, commercialization and the pageantry of modern Christmas in some ways has skewed our perception of the first Christmas. Even nativity scenes or cards or books about the first Christmas seem to paint that nativity scene, the birth of Christ, in a rather beautiful light. There's halos around the Lord Jesus, halos around Mary, the Virgin Mary, maybe even Joseph as well with the cows and the sheep by the manger side. But when we read Luke's account this Christmas morning, what we see is something that's decidedly not beautiful. Beautiful nor is it necessarily attractive, and even at the time Christ was born, seemingly even not noteworthy. In fact, it's a humble or a simple first Christmas. There's no tinsel, no tree, no feast, and certainly no Santa, But there is a gift. And the gift comes simply wrapped. And the gift, of course, this morning is the Lord Jesus Christ. But what we learn here, congregation, is that there is a glory in the nativity. But it's not a glory that can be perceived with the human eyes. Nor is it a glory, as Charlie Brown points out, that can be found in the world's modern conception of Christmas. The glory of Christmas comes from the person lying at the center of that nativity scene. The real beauty of Christmas, to see the real glory of it all, We need eyes of faith. You see, with the eyes of faith, we see that this child born in in that nativity scene, born in a stable, in that manger stall, is the fulfillment of all God's promises. That's what those four hymns have been about, hasn't it? God proclaims through Mary in chapter 1, verse 32, that Christ will be the king of an everlasting kingdom. Through Zechariah, God proclaims that Christ, verse 79, will be the light of the nations. In the angel song, they proclaim that Christ will be a Savior, and yet He succumbs with such simplicity and such humanity. Congregation, what we need to see, this is our theme in our of our time together this morning, is that the Son of God comes simply to save and to split. But we could add something to that theme, couldn't we? We need eyes of faith to see that the Son of God comes simply to save and to split. Let's look first at those first seven verses in Luke chapter 2, where we see that Christ came and was humbly born. Now, I would imagine, my friends, that when an heir is born to a throne, that the birth is, accom- is accompanied excuse me, with great pomp and circumstance. I think it's safe to say that when an heir to the throne is being born, that the birthing mother would likely have the best medical care that the country could provide. That she would be in the most comfortable of settings with no expense spared. There would be tens if not hundreds of people doting on the queen and the future king. Future kings are not born into obscurity. Not born into poverty. Yet this morning, Luke takes us into the birthing room of the heir of heaven the king of all the earth, and we find none of these amenities. In fact, what we're struck with here is the poverty and the humility of the king's birth. See first this morning in those first seven verses, see that the king of the world is born a subject of Rome. His humility is only heightened when we see that Jesus, the most important human being who's ever been born, was born as someone else's subject. You see that in those first two verses. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria, Luke, uh, this goes beyond just a marker so that the reader knows where they are in history, but the people who are in positions of power at that time also remind us that the Jews were an oppressed people. And Christ is born, humanly speaking, to Mary and Joseph who are Jews. Jews. Christ is born an oppressed people. One commentator notes there are two things the Jews really hated about being subjects of Rome. And you see this throughout the Gospels. They hated paying taxes to Rome and they hated the crucifixion that Rome enforced upon their subjects. And what's being described in these first two verses is that Jesus and His family were subjects to Roman taxation. See, the Jews like us would have been familiar with taxes. Even when Israel was their own nation, they were subject to taxes. But as you and I both know, taxes are much more tolerable when you at least pay them to your own nation rather than to a foreign nation. Furthermore, Rome's taxes served actually a devious purpose as they were a reminder to all the nations that Rome had subjugated that they were conquered. That they didn't have their own nation anymore. They were subjects to Caesar. One commentator even says in this taxation, it was as if Caesar was pressing his thumb down upon the Jews. Luke even says this, look at verse 1, when it says Caesar Augustus record, or makes a decree that the whole world should be registered. Obviously, Caesar wasn't king over the world, but it's almost as if he was. Having conquered so much of the world, and this was a way of congratulating himself. A tax was a means of demonstrating control. And Augustus decreed that each family needed to be registered in his own hometown. Now if you think that taxes are annoying now, imagine this. Joseph would have had to have traveled 90 miles on foot from Galilee to Bethlehem in order to register for his taxes. The point that Luke is trying to make for us in those first two verses is fairly simple. Jesus and his family are clearly subjects of Emperor Augustus. See not only that the king of the world is a subject of Rome, but see this also. The king of the world is born where no child should be born. Every child deserves the dignity of coming into this world in safety and comfort. Every child is a gift from God. They deserve these rights. Yet this was not a right that Christ was given. See, the decree from Augustus came when Mary was likely in her third trimester, so she traveled with Joseph 90 miles to Bethlehem. And verse 6 says, once her water breaks, they search for a place to deliver. And verse 7 says, there was no room for them in the inn. And so what was provided for them was likely a cave of some sort or an extra room on the side of a house where, excuse me, where the animals would have been stored. And it says in verse 7, excuse me, verse 6 and 7, that the king of the world was born in a cattle stall. Getting back to the point of it all here. If you were to describe verses 1 through 7 in one word, which word would you choose? How was Christ born here? I don't think the word we would choose is glorious. His parents are subject to a tyrannical government. Luke will say later in verses 22 and 23-24 as well, that they came to offer a sacrifice of the Lord, a pair of turtle turtle doves or two young pigeons. This was the poorest of the offerings required that they could offer. His parents are not only subjects, but his parents are in the lowest bracket of society. They are likely poor. They're giving birth in a stable with all the smells and all the sounds of animals. The word to describe the birth of Christ is humility is simplicity. That's what Luke wants us to take away from those first seven verses, that the king of the world was born in humility. Let's apply this to our lives. We need to be reminded, (coughs) excuse me, that God's magnificent work often goes on quietly and in unseen ways. You see, if you flip back in your Bibles to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, God prophesied through the prophet Micah that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But as Mary and Joseph are awaiting the birth of this child whom the angels have proclaimed, whom God Himself has prophesied, is the Messiah Himself. It's the third trimester. And they're not in Bethlehem. This would seem to cast doubt on what the angels have said. This would seem to cast doubt on God's prophecy. Has this, is this, the baby, excuse me, the Messiah himself? But in fulfillment of that promise, God, through Augustus, decreed that they should be registered. You can imagine the monotony and the frustration going on in their heads at that time. Not only do we have a baby during tax season, but we also have to travel 90 miles to register and pay our taxes. There's nothing more monotonous, nothing more boring and seemingly insignificant than your taxes. It seemed that God's promise would fail, but through that monotony, through the quietness, through the seemingly insignificant, God used Caesar. He used the taxes to accomplish His good plans of having His Messiah born in Bethlehem. He was born in humility. And that's what we need to see from those first seven verses. But there is a glorious sight here in the nativity scene. We see that Christ is born in humility, but when we turn to Simeon's song beginning in verse 22, we see that there is a dignity, there is a glory. I put it this way here. If Christ's birth was one of great humility and one without ceremony, is it wrong for the Christian to sing, O Holy Night? O Night Divine? If Christ's birth was all humility, is it wrong for us to glory in His birth? And the answer, of course, is certainly not. There is glory in the nativity. There is dignity. There is beauty there. But it is not a glory that appeals to the human senses. The glory is in who this babe is before God. You see, congregation, in order to truly understand this Christmas story, we need to have eyes of faith like Simeon. You must understand that Jesus is so humble. In His incarnation, you can't see His glory with your human eyes. If you look at verses 22-24, through 24, it tells us that after a mother had given birth, the law required, Leviticus 12, after 40 days after the birth, she needed to go to the temple to purify herself. And Luke says in those verses that they brought the Lord Jesus to the temple Christ is in the temple. There would have been thousands of people there who had just flocked to Jerusalem and the surrounding area to pay their taxes to Caesar. They would go to the temple while they were in the area. Thousands of people in the temple. God is in the temple with them. And according to their human eyes, no one noticed. That's how humble Christ was. That's how simply He came. Only one out of the thousands and thousands of people who would have seen this young mother walking with her child noticed Christ. John Calvin says this, Jesus Christ possessed neither honor nor eminence. No one recognized Him from His outward appearance alone as Israel's Savior of the world. Well, there was one who recognized Him. Simeon recognized Him because he was looking for the Messiah by faith. So the family comes into the temple, it says, with the Messiah in their arms, and there's a man named Simeon who is there, led by the Holy Spirit, Luke makes very clear, verse 25, who is awaiting the consolation of Israel. Consolation simply means comfort. He is awaiting for the comfort of the Messiah. Another thing worth noting is that Simeon here, (coughs) excuse me, Simeon, is not described by Luke as a prophet or a priest, rich or famous. We infer then that he is actually a plain man, a simple man who has placed his hope in the Messiah to come. That's what the consolation of Israel is. It's a euphemism, if you will, it's a saying for the Messiah. He's putting His hope in the Messiah. And frankly, verse 26 says, it seems that He's old. How old? We don't know. But John Calvin says, He was aged and infirmed, and listen to this, with one foot in the grave. That's Calvin's take on it. And what do we know about old men? Their eyes don't work so well. But by the Spirit's leading, when the baby Jesus came into the temple, He saw Christ's glory when no one else did. Think about that this morning. Really ponder it. Thousands of people in the temple. And only one seeing Christ for who He is. Herod, at this time is looking for Jesus, looking to put Christ to death, he can't find Him. No one has seen Christ but this older man. It would be wise for us to pause when we read this passage and ask the question, how? Here is the principle. For those looking for the Messiah by faith, Salvation is clearly seen in Christ. Even though He is humble. Even though He has simply come. The prophet Isaiah says that there is no beauty to Christ. There is nothing about Him that would draw us to Him in His outward appearance. But for those who look unto Christ for salvation, it is clearly seen in Him. So, you need to imagine Mary and Joseph walking into the temple with the babe Jesus and this older gentleman running to them, scooping up the little Lord Jesus into his arms, only 40 ish days old, and looking into his eyes, the final hymn of Luke's gospel. He says in verse 29 Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word for my eyes have seen your salvation don't miss the significance of this christmas prophecy even though jesus is humble even though his parents are poor even though the world neither recognizes him nor regards him salvation is here in christ God is in the hands of Simeon and God has fulfilled His Word to save the world. Salvation has come in Christ. That's what we're celebrating this morning. Salvation is here. For those of us who are still working out The birth of Christ in our own hearts. You might ask the question what is salvation? Salvation is simply this we are sinners with no hope of saving ourselves. This is salvation. But Christ has come to save, to raise us up to heaven. Here, Simeon is explaining that Christ has come, that all who look to Him in faith might have access to God, would have access to Heaven, would have peace in their hearts. Though they are yet sinners, they no longer are at war with God, no longer at war with their fellow man, they have peace in Him. This peace is actually illustrated in Simeon. What kind of peace does Christ bring? Look what Simeon says. You are letting your servant depart in peace. What is he saying here? He's saying, now that I've seen Christ, now that I know the way of salvation, I can die happily. You know, one of the joys of being a minister, a Christian minister of the word, is I've had the privilege of being with many people on their deathbeds. And I always say to people, my favorite part of the job here at Trinity, and when I served in the RCA back in Canada, one of the greatest parts of the job was officiating Christian funerals. That declaration of peace that God gives to his saints. I've been with many on their deathbeds, all with varying levels of peace. Some have more, some have less. But what is consistent with all those, with all of these people, is that the peace that they have is consistent with their looking to Christ by faith. How do we die happily? How can Christians throughout human history go to the Colosseum with peace? How can Christians even now today in uh, I believe it's West Africa happily worship God even with the threat on their lives from radical Islam or even from their governments? It's because they have peace in looking to Jesus Christ. Simeon is saying there is great peace for those who find salvation in Christ. Congregation, do you need peace this morning? Peace with warring family members. Peace with warring co-workers. Peace with your sin. Peace with God. Doesn't Simeon make it clear? We can have this peace by looking to this Lord Jesus. Though humble and seemingly unbeautiful to us, there is salvation manifest in Him. That's the first half of this song, but in verse 32, Simeon rejoices in simply this, that Christ has come for anyone who looks to Him by faith. Christ is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to the people or to your people Israel. You see, the Jews were God's Old Testament church, and the way that you received God's grace in the Old Testament is that you had to become a Jew. If you were a man, you needed to be circumcised. You needed to take on the Jewish garb. You needed to follow the Jewish law. But the Lord had always said, even back to Genesis 6, that His grace would expand to the Gentiles. That he would enlarge the tents of Japheth. Here, Simeon is rejoicing that Christ is the light to all the nations. It doesn't matter if you are white or black, if you are brown or yellow, if you are poor or rich. Simeon is rejoicing. Christ is for all, salvation is for the world. God's grace for a time was localized only in the temple. If you wanted to have God's presence in your life, you had to go to Jerusalem. But in Christ's birth, God's grace expands to the world. God's presence goes beyond Jerusalem, beyond Israel, beyond Rome, even unto the ends of the earth Yes, His presence and His grace has expanded even to you this morning. Wherever you might be. Though we may not be in church together this morning, God is present in your home. God's grace is there for all who look to the Messiah by faith. You see, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no hope of salvation. And there is only one prerequisite for this salvation. And Jesus doesn't require money. He doesn't require a certain dress. Or as we've already noted, a certain skin color. Christ, all that He requires is that you fall on your knees and that you embrace the Messiah that has come by faith. He has come to save lost Sinners. Simeon illustrates this principle. Word of application, again, as we conclude this second point. Simeon illustrates this very well. That those who look to God by faith, those who are awaiting the hope and the Messiah, will never be disappointed in God. There is no such thing as a penitent sinner crying out to Christ for mercy that is rejected. It never happens. The doors of heaven have been thrown open wide in Jesus Christ. Come, come to Christ. Now the third and final point we need to see this morning, we've seen the humble birth of Christ, the glorious sight of Christ, And now we see Simeon also makes a fearful prophecy in verses 33 and 35. You see, it would be nice if we could go home now and say amen and walk out before we have to hear what Simeon says next. But Simeon has a word for Mary and Joseph. As they are marveling at the child in their arms, He tells them that the Christ, the babe, has come not only to save, but He has also come to split. He's come to divide. Behold, He says in verse 33, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. This is the forgotten part of Jesus' Advent story. I'd imagine there's probably not many of you who read this verse around the table with your family on Christmas Eve. We're much more inclined to the Christmas verses about peace on earth. But I want to ask you this question, how does Christ bring peace? If there is going to be peace on earth, if there is going to be peace with our fellow men, and peace even within our own hearts, Peace between man and God, how does he bring peace? Tim Keller points this out to me, and I think it was, to me, I think it was a a very fitting point regarding this verse. He says, like a surgeon cannot bring peace within your body when you have a tumor without cutting you open, without spilling your blood so does Christ need to do surgery on the world. Jesus Himself said this in Matthew 10, verse 34. Do not think I have come to bring peace, but a sword. Christ, of course, later will say, I'm not here to bring violence. He clarifies Himself. But He's saying, by virtue of who I am, if I am what the Word says about me, that I am truly God and truly man, that truly the one exclusive Savior of the world, by virtue of who this babe is, Simeon says, people will be divided. And Christian, you know this to be true. The Gospel is polarizing. If you've ever had a friend or a family member who's a militant atheist, you know what I'm talking about. Simeon is saying, the nation of Israel will not be the same since Christ is born. In fact, he will split the nation in two. He's saying there's no neutral ground when it comes to this Savior. You are either for Christ, or you're against Christ. What we're seeing then is that Simeon, as he's holding that baby, as he's looking into Christ's eyes, he gets a glimpse of Calvary as well, doesn't he? He sees that this little one, who is born in humility, though although is yet a king, will be opposed by the people of this world. He will be condemned. He will be pierced. He will be nailed to the cross. I know we didn't sing it this morning, but I read those two stanzas for you where it says in Christian Awake and Salute the Happy Morning Follow the trace of Christ from the manger to the cross. He will be nailed to the cross. And Simeon says to Mary, It'll pierce your own soul, verse 35. Mary had come to love little Lord Jesus, come to know him, come to embrace him and the gospel that he brings, to see her son despised and rejected and crucified. It will crush her. He has come to such humility. How do we make sense of all this? That He is both humble and glorious and dividing? I love what the Apostle Paul says when he's considering the incarnation of Christ in 2 Corinthians 8. Listen to what he says. Though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor. So that you by His poverty might become rich. Christ chose humility. He chose to be despised and rejected. Yes, He even chose death. This is what we celebrate this Christmas morning. That He might raise you up to heaven. To you who may be listening, I don't know who you are. Are you those who will embrace Christ? Or you are one of those who will reject? but He has come to save. I pray you make the decision this morning to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, to fall on your knees and embrace Him. Let's conclude this morning. Listen closely, my dear friends. This baby was born in a stable, not a palace. Laid in a manger, not a fancy bassinet to make you rich. This Christmas, in order for someone to give you a gift and you become richer, they had to become poorer. The Christmas story truly is that Christ became poor. Born in humility. That you and I might have salvation. So what is Christmas all about? Let's put it like this. We are so sinful that Christ had to come for us but we are also so loved that Christ was willing to come for us even though it would result in his cross and his death. Let us give thanks this Christmas morning for this indescribable gift. Amen. Let's pray. Merciful Father, we give you thanks for this Lord's Day morning, where we could celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has come in simplicity and humility, yet Lord is glorious in His person, in His beauty. And Father, we pray now that as we go our separate ways, and we pray, Lord, that You would bring us back together to worship You again this evening, that You would impress upon our hearts that Christ has come to save and to divide, to split. But We pray, Lord, that You would touch these hearts by Your Holy Spirit, and that they might choose the good way of salvation. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.